Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Andy Lambert, uh, relatively new here. Happy to be with you this morning to share God's word, and we will be sharing from uh, Luke 9, chapter 9. Uh, and if you would start turning to chapter 9 of uh, the Gospel of Luke in your Bibles, that'd be great. If you need a Bible, certainly raise your hand. We'll find a way to get one to you, and uh, you can have that if you need it. Let me ask you this. Have you ever jumped into the middle of something, you know, like a Monopoly game or a thousand-piece puzzle or maybe uh, the middle of a book or maybe the middle of a conversation? It doesn't work very well, does it, right? And, and admittedly, uh, I, have, I have to say that's, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to jump into the middle of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. Now, take football, for example, right? I, I ignored the first two-thirds of the season, and I had new idea when I started watching who was on the rise, who was on the demise, uh, who had plateaued, who would do well. So you can't jump into the middle very well. Or, you know, some of you may relate to this a little better. Take Marvel movies. I think there's like 25 of them, and I still have no idea how they relate to each other. Right? So if you jump into the middle of something, it's kind of difficult. And, and you're going to feel that same way as we go into Luke chapter 9 today. But uh, it, w admittedly, by the time we get to Luke chapter 9, the preliminaries are out of the way. The plot, the trajectory of the book is set. And so I want to help you get started and set the stage just a little bit. Luke is the author, right? And he has been commissioned to set forth an orderly account of the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. He's been commissioned by someone to actually take eyewitnesses' accounts, take the stories, take the events, and string them together for us. And as you read through the Gospel of Luke, if you were to read it from end to end very carefully, you would see lurking under all of this is a question. And the question is this, who is this? Who is this Jesus? That's the question that's just sitting underneath so much of what happens in the Gospel of Luke. And, and consider why this is important. It, it matters how we respond to the, uh, to the identity of Jesus. I mean, I want to point out, this isn't, this isn't a police lineup where we're trying to pick out Jesus from 12 or 13 men. No, Jesus is actually front and center the whole time. And in that, we start to see his identity revealed, and we need to respond to that. And so that's the big idea, the main point today, if you will. How will you respond to Jesus as he is revealed this very morning through the Holy Scriptures? That is the question, okay? So I, I have to say that Luke could have simply given us some answers. He could have given us the cliff notes, right? And we would have all been able to pass the multiple choice test. But he doesn't do that. Instead, as I said, he was commissioned to take the actual events, the accounts, and eyewitness stories, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, string them together and present to us this picture of who Jesus is. I want you to think just for a moment about the most beautiful picture or mural or masterpiece you've ever seen. I don't know what it looks like, but, but I want to tell you that every brush stroke, every seam, every little nuance, every transition is deliberate and perfect. And that's the way the Gospel of Luke unfolds. It's put together beautifully. It's, a, it's this thing that presents a mosaic of Jesus. 
And it reveals him with stories and parables, vignettes and episodes and different scenes. And we're going to look at a few of those this morning, all right? And, and when we are uh, done, I want you to see enmeshed in all of this is how the question of Jesus' identity is answered. That's what I want you to see. And we will see that he is revealed as the creator, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, and as the Son of God. And I, I, I have one more slide that we will show you because I want you to have a road map of how we're going to progress through this because there is risk you'll get lost today. And I'm going to try and keep you tied to the road map, okay? We are going to see that first the identity question is brought up by Herod. Then we're going to see that Jesus is revealed as creator. Then the question of identity will surface again. And then we'll talk through and see how he Jesus is revealed as Messiah, as Son of Man, as Son of God. That's a lot, so let's get going. We'll, we'll buckle your seatbelts and, and we'll dive in. Now, we may take a detour if necessary today, okay? I've warned you, there may be a detour involved in this little roadmap here, but, but I want to provoke out of you a response to Jesus as he is revealed. That is the premise. You should see how he is revealed, and as you do... The big idea here is you must respond to Jesus as he is revealed, okay? So the first thing we're going to talk about, our first stop along the way, is the question of identity. So join me in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 7, and we'll read 7, 8, and 9 together, all right? I'll read them, you listen, and follow along. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. Now the first thing I want you to know about Herod, this guy, this tetrarch, he's the governor of Galilee, and he is well aware of Jewish history. He's well aware of their traditions and their customs, and, and he's quite likely aware of the Old Testament prophets and their stories and their miracles. He's, he's, seen, he's heard all that, and then he hears about this guy Jesus comes along, and, and perhaps he's heard about the miracles of healing, calming the storm, raising the dead. And so he is aware of Jesus, but note that he is perplexed about Jesus' identity. He's perplexed. He, and notice how Luke sets up this question as it comes from Herod. Look at verse 9. Who is this about whom I hear such things? As I've mentioned, that's the underlying question going on under this gospel, so stick with me because we're going to see how Jesus is revealed. Herod is perplexed by the information and assumptions he's given. Some say maybe John the Baptist has been raised from the dead because, you know, Herod had him beheaded on a whim. Now he wonders if, if maybe Jesus is actually some Old Testament prophet named Elijah who's come back with a message or just maybe just a random one of many Old Testament prophets from uh, from the older times. And so there are many ways that this question is being answered among the people. There's speculation and there's rumors on the grapevine. But, you know, what's interesting to me, this is a rhetorical question, okay, maybe uh, an interesting question and eventually a relevant question. Why not Moses? Why, why doesn't Herod or the grapevine suggest that maybe Jesus is Moses? In fact, nobody in the gospel makes that suggestion. And there's probably a reason. I, I think it's perhaps because Moses was in a category by himself. Remember I 
talked about a detour. This is just a little detour, all right? Moses didn't just prophesy and work miracles. He functioned as a prophet and a priest. And as a man in the Old Testament, nobody rises up above him. Remember, Herod was conversant with Judaism, with all the Jewish traditions, and he likely would have heard about Moses. And I want to say that Moses, back in Deuteronomy, had already pointed forward to Jesus when he says this, and I'll just read it for you, Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. He's pointing to Jesus, okay? Moses is. So anyhow, we'll move on. Uh, Herod's question brings us to how the identity of Jesus is revealed, all right? Notice that Herod kind of wants a straightforward propositional answer. He wants the cliff notes, and Luke doesn't do that. Instead, the next thing that happens in Luke is Luke sets up this scene to show us how Jesus is revealed as the creator, Okay, so let's, let's read the next few verses, 10 through 17. I read you follow along, please. In Luke 9, starting in verse 20, 10. Uh, on their return, this is the disciples, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to the town of Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned of it, they followed him, and he, Jesus, welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I realize this is a familiar story, right? And let's just make a few observations from it. First of all, there's, there's 5,000 men, so you realize that they're not talking about women and children. So if you include women and children, maybe there's 10 or 15,000, maybe 20,000. We don't really know, but there's a lot of people. Thousands of people, and there's 12 baskets of broken pieces left over. And I want to point out there's no way this was a deception or a trickery. There are too many witnesses, too many eyewitnesses, and too many leftovers. This was a miracle. And I know this is often taught as a, a way of an, an object lesson of having faith, right? And, and, and our faith is encouraged when we see how God uh, takes care of his people and provides for them. But there's, there's more to this. I want you to go a little bit below, a little deeper. What we actually learn about Jesus in this story is that he is the creator. We see Jesus take a few loaves and fishes, and he multiplies them supernaturally into many loaves and fishes. He takes a little, and he makes a lot. He isn't pulling them out of his sleeve like a magic trick, or as some have suggested, he hasn't just convinced everybody to share their lunch. No, he's actually creating food supernaturally. In accordance with the Father's will above, he shows himself able to create. 
He has the power to create from nothing. You know, he's actually demonstrating his role as God by creating. And I, I think a lot of us are okay with the idea that God somehow created out of nothing way back in, in what feels like a galaxy far, far away, right? But this miracle is in your face. This miracle is right there in front of their faces and they can't deny it. And I want to think very quickly and theologically about how this parallels what God did in the Old Testament. Do you remember what God did? He provided bread, or we call it manna. He provided manna and meat for Israel in the desert. Do you remember? Israel had just come out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they need provisions. And God, he provides food. What does he do? He provides first manna from heaven, and then he provides meat by sending them quail. The similarity is actually stunning. Crowds provided with food in a wilderness, desolate spot. As Israel makes an exodus, God puts on display his power, his miraculous power of provision through the man and the meat. And here in Luke, we see Jesus step right into the identity of God as creator. And he does the same thing by performing the same miracle. God the Father is operating miraculously in the midst of an exodus in the wilderness with the old people, in the Old Testament with the people in the wilderness, and Jesus mimics his father and operates miraculously in the midst of another group in another desolate spot. He is creator. Remember now, stick with me, Luke could have given us the cliff notes, right? He could have given us a statement, a proposition, but instead he accurately describes a real event because he is showing that Jesus actually is creator. So in these verses, we see Jesus revealed as the creator. And next we see Jesus, uh, the question of Jesus' identity come up again, and then we see Jesus revealed as the Messiah. So let's pick up the text in verses 18 through 21. All right? In 18, now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly, Jesus strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one. And I want to just make a few observations here. Jesus asks a direct question. Who do the crowd say that I am? And the disciples, they're happy to kind of regurgitate the speculation that's on the grapevine, right? Uh, if, this was, if this was family feud, we got the top three answers on the board, okay? The top answer that pops up, of course, is John the Baptist. Maybe it's John the Baptist, or, or maybe it's Elijah. Elijah is once again presented as a serious possibility. Or maybe it's just an unknown prophet of old. But what we see next is that Jesus is revealed as the Messiah. See, clearly Jesus isn't interested in all their speculation in the grapevine. So instead, he asks the more important question. Do you see it in verse 20? Who do you say that I am? That's what he asked the disciples. And Peter, put on the spot, answers from a place that really doesn't belong to him. He says, the Christ of God. Now, Luke kind of abbreviates this account, so we're going to just look at a few verses in Matthew 16 where we get a little more important detail. Matthew 16, verse 15, 16, and 17. 
I'm going to read them quickly. He said to them, this is again, is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You see, Peter says the Christ, the son of the living God. Not just the Christ, but one who is descended directly from God the Father in heaven, the living God. And Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Do you see that in verse 17? He, he says it, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. He says, this is natural, supernatural revelation. Bro. You couldn't figure this out on your own, Peter. Obviously, my Father in heaven opened your eyes to see that. Now, in both accounts, okay, in both accounts, Luke and Matthew use the word Christ. And Christ comes from the Greek word meaning Christos, or, 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 or comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one, the chosen one. It's the exact equivalent of the Hebrew word, the Messiah. So you hear me and feel me using these interchangeably, the Christ, Messiah. I'm using them as exact equals, okay? And, and what we learn is that the Christ is the Messiah, a Savior who will come from the nation of Israel to make all things right. And he will come, just not in the way that the Israel's, Israelites and the Jewish people expected. So we see here in these few verses, Jesus is revealed as, as the Christ, as the Messiah. First, Herod asked the question, who is this? And we see, in Jesus, we see that Jesus in chapter 9 of Luke is revealed first as the creator who feeds the crowd. Then we see Jesus revealed by God through Peter as the Christ, the Messiah. And then we see, next, coming up, we see Jesus self-identify as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man. Read with me Luke 9, 21 and 22. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. Notice how he's referring to himself in the third person. And I find this interesting, right? Hard to say why Jesus does this. Do you, do you go around referring to yourself in the third person? I had this friend back in the Air Force many years ago. His name was Roy, and we'd, we'd get into these heated debates about something we should do with technology, and he had this interesting way of, of, of using the third person. He would say, and Roy thinks we should do such and such because of X, Y, and Z, and he always had this big you know, kind of grin on his face. And It was like he took himself out of the conversation and put somebody else in. And I, I have to admit, I don't know why Jesus does this, and I doubt he had a big grin on his face, but he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And you may be wondering a little bit about this title, the Son of Man, and I'm going I'm to sketch it out for you very quickly. First, we know it's used in the Old Testament, and, and I want to help you, okay? I really want to help you. There's three ways it's used in the Old Testament. The first and most common and ordinary way it's used is to, as a synonym a synonym for man or human. Most of the time when you bump into son of man in the Old Testament, it's just referring to a person. The second way, if you bump into it in Ezekiel, just file this one away, if, it, when son of man is used in Ezekiel, it's referring to Ezekiel. 
the prophet. But the third and most interesting way it's used is in Daniel 7, right? And many of you are aware of this and know this, right? Daniel 7 is going to come up, uh, verses 13 and 14 on the, on the slide here. But I just want to make a summary statement about this as you read through these verses. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The ancient of days here is God, okay? And to him... To the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. I could summarize it this way. One like the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days and receives an everlasting dominion and glory. Son of Man here is a reference to the Messiah. It is pointing forward to Jesus. Now, to be clear, Son of Man in the Old Testament isn't used a lot for Christ. It's used this way once in Daniel 7. And, and it is very interesting, however, in the New Testament we come along and Jesus picks up this title and he starts to use it about himself. He uses it about himself. And, and in the New Testament, the term is used about Jesus or by Jesus, referring to himself 84 times in the four Gospels. A bunch. 84 different times. And I, I see that he does at least two things with this title. Okay? First... Stick with me. First, when Jesus uses this title, he uses it to direct attention to himself as the one who has the ability, the one and only who can deliver his people, deliver them into everlasting eternal security and salvation. All right? So the people of Israel, they're waiting for this Savior, this Messiah, this Son of Man figure to come back and set their will right, and Jesus is that one. He just doesn't do it the way they expect him to. The second thing Jesus does with the title Son of Man is he adds meaning into it, all right? He imports more meaning into this title than Daniel ever saw or recorded in his vision. He does this in a number of ways, but I'm only going to show you one because it's in our text. Don't miss this very important way in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, all right? In that verse, Jesus connects the glorious Son of Man, this figure who will come back with the Messiah, right? Peter has already identified Jesus as the Christ of God or the Messiah in verse 20. Jesus then comes and in verse 22 identifies himself as the Son of Man. And there he connects the glorious Son of Man with the mission of the Messiah. You see what he says? He says, this one, the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be rejected by the chief priests and scribes. He must suffer many things. He will be killed, and he will be raised up on the third day. You see, the one who is the Son of Man, who is due all glory, who will receive an eternal kingdom, will first suffer, die, and rise again. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, we're now starting to see a little bit more clearly who Jesus is. Jesus is revealed as the creator, the one who creates on the fly to provide for his people. Jesus is revealed as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of God's people. And he is revealed as the Son of Man, this glorious figure who will return and assemble all of his people and dwell with them forever. Now, as we see this more clearly, let's, let's replay for ourselves the underlying question Luke sets out to answer in his gospel. Do you remember what it is? Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Here we are grappling with the identity of Jesus, just like the crowds, 
just like Herod, and we should be asking ourselves this exact question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Let's flip back, just stay in the same place, flip back and review the answers of Herod and the crowd. Just for a moment, notice how the assumptions of Herod in verses 7 and through 9 and the assumptions of the crowd in 18 through 19 are very, very similar. The family feud thing, right? Maybe this is John the Baptist. Maybe this is Elijah. Maybe it's a prophet of old. And again, what I find interesting and conspicuously absent is nobody brings up Moses. Nobody suggests that Jesus is Moses back from the dead. Nobody elevates Jesus to the level of Moses. It's as if Moses is untouchable. And if we consider everything that Moses did, it's hard to imagine someone greater in the Old Testament. I suspect that the Pharisees, the disciples, the crowds, uh, all of the religious authorities, none of them could imagine of elevating Jesus up to the status of Moses. Why might that be? You've got to stick with me here, folks. We're about to take a little detour on this roadmap, okay? You've got to stay with me, stick closely, because uh, uh, we're taking a detour, but it all leads to the final destination, all right? We're turning this corner, and I want to take a moment to flash back to something in Exodus, chapter 19, all right? It's this big moment. We only have time for one big moment in the life and ministry of Moses, but it's a significant event for Moses, and it's a significant event for the people of God, the Israelites, all right, so remember, just as a way of setup, the people have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. The Jewish people have been delivered. They're in the wilderness for a few months. And God is about to reveal himself and establish a covenant with them. And the main point of my detour is this. Moses records how God reveals himself to the people at the mountain. I'll say it again. The point of my detour here is that Moses reveals and captures and records how God reveals himself to the people at the mountain. Let's read together Exodus 19, chapter 19, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Let's read this. On the morning of the third day, all the people are down at the bottom of the mountain, okay? On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Notice the dramatic outward signs, powerful signs, signs that instill fear, right? Verse 16, thunder, lightning, cloud, trumpet blast. Mount Sinai's wrapped in smoke. Verse 18, the Lord descends in fire. And the trumpet is deafening. God speaks. And the Lord calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. Now I know, I know what's going on here. Right now you're wondering, what does this have to do with the identity of Jesus? 
I know you're thinking that. And, and, and I propose to you that back in the book of Luke, nobody wants to suggest that, Moses, uh, that Jesus is, is Moses resurrected. Nobody wants to propose that. They don't want to suggest that it's him. Nobody wants to give Jesus that much credit or glory or authority. But, ironically, Moses pointed forward to Jesus. Let's look at verse, uh, excuse me, we're in a different book. We're going to bring it up on the screen. Deuteronomy 18, 15. You see what happens here? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses writing. Like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Jesus is this prophet that Moses was talking about. He is this prophet. Notice what Moses say. A prophet like me, someone who will deliver you, someone who is face-to-face with God, someone who will speak with God's authority. And he says it will be from among you. It will be like a brother from the nation of Israel, and, and you must listen to him. Jesus is this prophet. Now, let's flash forward, okay? I've set it all up. We've taken our detour. We're going to get back on the roadmap, and let's flash forward and read nine more verses from Luke chapter 9 and see how Jesus is revealed as the Son of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were with him, talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now in a moment... I want to go back and I want to sift through this text. I want to explore exactly what's happening here. But, but before I do, do you see any similarities between Jesus on the mountain and Moses on the mountain? Do you see that there, there's a mountain, there's, there's a cloud, there's glory, there's God speaking, there's fear, there's flashes of lightning, flashes of glory, there's revelation from God. The parallels are striking and and grab my attention and and make us ask, what's going on here? And and the answer to that question is God is revealing himself in both cases with unmistakable signs and wonders. Are you tracking with me? Let's look. Let's take a few minutes. Let's look at what's happening in this account that Luke provides for us, this eyewitness account of Jesus' transfiguration. First of all, Jesus takes three disciples up the mountain with him, his inner circle, right? James, John, Peter, and and, uh, he starts to pray, and they get sleepy. It seems like a habit they have, and they fall asleep. And and while Jesus is praying, something happens, right? There is this appearance of his is altered. His clothes become radiant, dazzling white, bright, glowing, if you will. 
And in this momentary, temporary transition takes place between earth and heaven. You see, Jesus' divine glory has actually been concealed since his birth. But now his intrinsic glory shines through. And for a moment, just a brief moment, we see him clearly as he is. For some reason, on the mountain, the radiance of God's glory is on display in Jesus. And while Jesus prays, his body, his countenance, his face, his clothes, they shine forth glory from eternity. And unless we miss the obvious, let me state it. This is a revelation of Jesus' deity. It is a revelation of the fact that he is God. But that's not all that's going on here. Let's keep looking. Notice what else is going on. Behold, Elijah and Moses are standing there with him and talking. And they have a topic of conversation. Did you catch that? They're talking about his departure. And that departure word is, I just thought it was interesting. Let's point this out, is the Greek word is exodus. You've heard that word before already today, exodus and exit. And, and it could mean to leave, to depart, or very specifically, departure from life. You get that? It means to die. It could mean to die. And that fits the context of Jesus' ministry and the context of this passage where in Luke Chapter 9, verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So to be very pointed, Elijah and Moses are discussing Jesus' upcoming death. But perhaps implied here is more, a, a reference to Jesus' departure or exodus through his resurrection. He will, in fact, depart from the grave never to die again, right? And that departure, his resurrection, will finalize the escape route or the exodus for the people of God. That word is really actually important. It's an important allusion to the departure through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So there's Jesus and Moses and Elijah standing at this weird intersection between heaven and earth, and, and they're talking about his death, his departure. And then, and then what happens? The disciples wake up. They pop awake, right? And they see three individuals talking, and, and they see the glory around them, and Impetuous Peter, he jumps up and he says, and I paraphrase, you know, this is awesome. Let's camp out for a week or two because we don't want to leave this awesome spot where the glory of God is on display, right? That's kind of what he's saying. And, and who wouldn't want to hang out? Who wouldn't want to stay right there with Jesus in his glory? Who wouldn't want that? But I want you to think for a second. What is implied in Peter's statement? And I'm going to answer that so you don't have to think too hard. What's implied is that Moses and Elijah are equal to Jesus. We'll make three tents, one for you and you and you. And the whole gospel of Luke is trying to answer this question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? And so God intervenes. He decides to weigh in from above, right? He, he quickly fixes Peter's assumption and he sets the record straight because he's not going to let the glory of Jesus be confused with that of Moses and Elijah. And so he booms from heaven and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. <laughs> you ever been startled by a loud voice from heaven? 
<laughs> I know I haven't, but how about a loud thunderclap from heaven or, or maybe a sonic boom of a jet airplane flying over and you, you jump. You, like, I bet the disciples actually jumped. That's my guess, right? Imagine how odd and terrifying it would be to hear that voice from heaven. Just like Moses and the Israelites at the mountain, the disciples, they were terrified. That's what it says, they were afraid. And I want you to observe three things about God's statement. First, God says, this is my son. The identity of Jesus is revealed and confirmed. Again, supernaturally, from above, by the Father. Second, God says, my chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ of God, the one who is going to effect an, ex an exodus, an exit for the people of God, an exodus out of sin, rebellion, and defiance into the wonderful promises of God. And third, he says, Listen to him. I guess the disciples needed that reminder. The people of Israel needed that reminder as they wandered through the desert. And we need that reminder today too. Listen to Jesus and submit to the claims of the Son of God. So here in these verses we see Jesus on the mountain transfigured. And God the Father speaks from heaven. And I hope you haven't missed some of the similarities, the similar features we see between Moses in Exodus and Jesus in Luke chapter 9. There's the mountain, there's the cloud, there's the glory, flashes of lightning, flashes of glory. There is the voice, there is the fear, there is revelation from God. We can see many, many similarities between Moses on the mountain and Jesus on the mountain. And I want to highlight just two of those. But before I do, never, ever forget that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. I want to highlight two similarities in these accounts. I'm going to use two words to set it up. There's Revelation and there's Exodus. Two words for similarities, similar features between Jesus on the mountain and Moses on the mountain. First, the word revelation. And by that I mean the presence of God is revealed on the mountain and the word of God is revealed on the mountain. For Moses and Israel back then, they saw, felt, and heard God's presence at the mountain. And then Moses comes down and he acts as the mediator and he relays and translates and gives all the words and instructions revealed by God. We didn't talk about that, but that's what he does. For us, as we see in this text of Luke chapter 9, that on the mountain, we see through the text, we feel, we hear Jesus revealed as God's own son. Luke chapter 9. The very presence of God's son comes into the world through his incarnation. And then it's authenticated on the mountain. Authenticated through his intrinsic glory shining through and by his father's words. So on the mountain, Jesus is revealed as God and given all authority to speak as God because he is God. Revelation. Exodus, my second word. It's a hook that you can hang a lot on. The word Exodus. For Moses and Israel, God had already orchestrated an escape out of Egypt using Moses as his point man. And using Moses, God led the Jewish people out of slavery and into untold blessings. But for us here today, well, God orchestrates a different kind of exodus 
an exodus through his son Jesus, which I am going to try to describe for you in broad strokes. You see, Jesus starts this exodus through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. He does this by moving people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He is moving people out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. He is taking people with dead, cold, stone, cold hearts, dead hearts, and giving them new hearts, hearts made in the likeness of Jesus by God himself. He is making a people who feared death to no longer fear death. He is moving the hopeless out of hopelessness and into hope. He is taking people who are alienated and estranged from God and reconciling them to God the Father. He is creating a people who no longer worship themselves, but instead worship Jesus. He is preparing a people for his return, a people who live in confidence and faith. He is changing people who were his enemies into his friends and calling them brothers and sisters. He is opening the door to move from an awful, dead eternity to a life living, giving eternity in the presence of God and Jesus himself. He is gathering a people who are holy, who are his treasured possession, the very apple of his eye. And just like Moses was made point man to lead a timely escape out of Egypt, Jesus is God's appointed one to lead an eternal escape from sin, death, and certain judgment. You see, everything God did with Moses points to the greater reality of Jesus. And that's where the gospel of Luke comes in, especially chapter 9. It provides some of the most definitive, most clear evidence that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Luke underpins the entire gospel with this recurring question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Today, my friends, you have seen Jesus revealed, and I wonder, how will you respond? Believer, Christian, how will you respond? Will you bow in humility and worship? Skeptic, doubter, how will you respond? Will you bow in humility and respond in faith? We know it is Jesus. We know that it is God who saves, but he calls us to respond. Today you have seen Jesus revealed as the creator. You have seen him revealed as the Messiah, this Christ of God, the Savior. You have seen him revealed as the Son of Man, this glorious figure who will return in triumph. You have seen Jesus revealed as the very Son of God, the one who is fully God and fully man. So who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And how do you respond to this revelation? Are you like Herod? Confused, perplexed, perplexed, trying to figure out who Jesus is? And, and just throwing up answers and hoping one will stick? Do you find yourself drowning in a thousand different voices and opinions about Jesus? Are you like the crowds who come to Jesus? to be fed and healed? Do you want the benefits of Jesus and look right through him as the creator? Do you hear about Jesus creating, healing, raising the dead, casting out demons, and come to Christmas and see him as a baby in the manger? Or an icon at Easter? 
Are you like the disciples on the mountain? Do you think Jesus is just another great prophet? Do you think Jesus is just another Elijah or another Moses? Do you fall prey to the Muslim assertion that Jesus was a great man and a great prophet, but not God? Are you like the Pharisees, we didn't talk much about them, who think they can save themselves through their actions and entirely miss the Messiah? Do you miss Jesus as the only one who can deal decisively with your sin and your rebellion and restore your relationship with God? Let me ask you, do you identify Jesus the way he identifies himself? as the son of man, the son of man who will return in a blaze of glory to judge the living and the dead, literally? Do you realize he has all authority in heaven and on earth? Do you understand he is the eternal matchless king who every judgment he makes is perfect, flawless, and without error? Do you understand that one day he will return as the son of man, regal, glorious, our savior, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Do you recognize Jesus the way he was identified on the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you believe God when he says, this is my son? Do you believe God when he says, I paraphrase, I chose my own son to provide salvation through his death on a cross? Do you recoil and cringe when God says, listen to my son Jesus? Let me ask you, can you identify Jesus? Don't be confused. He stands alone. He towers above all others. He is head and shoulders above all. He is greater than everyone. He is greater in every way. He is greater than John the Baptist. He is greater than Elijah and the prophets of old. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than the high priest. He is greater than the angels. Let me ask you, do you see Jesus as he is revealed? He is God's son, God's chosen one, and we must listen to him. Let me ask you, do you understand the identity of Jesus? He is the fulfillment of all the promises and expectations of God. His perfections allow him to stand in our place. His death atones for our sins. His resurrection breaks the power of death hanging over us. He is currently seated as the king of kings. He is seated at the power, in power at the right hand of God the Father. He communicates because he is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate word from God. He is the wonderful counselor who gives the very words of life. He stands as the great high priest who mediates between man and God. He is Jesus, the son of God, who provides salvation from start to finish. If you can identify Jesus, if you see him as he is revealed, if you understand the identity of Jesus, you can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your life now and your life in eternity. If you haven't placed your full, unmitigated trust, faith, and allegiance in Christ, you should. You must. You must trust him. You must listen to him, for he is the wonderful counselor. He is almighty God. He is the prince of peace. Friend, if you need peace with God today, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is your creator. You should listen to him. He is the Messiah, the Savior, who takes away sin and restores fellowship with God the Father in heaven above. He provides the only way of escaping the wrath of God, deserved for my sins and deserved for your sin. The wrath deserved for your sins and for my sins. He says, God says, listen to Jesus. Jesus' very words have authority in them, authority to give life. 
And what does Jesus say? He says, come. And with that one word, he invites you to look to him for life. He invites you to look to him and trust him for forgiveness. He summons you to put your faith in him. You should quit trusting yourself. And trust completely in the Son of Man, the Son of God. You have never once had the ability to rid yourself of sin or the guilt of sin. But the Messiah does. The Christ of God has the power to create, to make you new, to make you clean, to forgive, to give you eternal life. His invitation stands open to all who will listen. He says, come. In the next few minutes you have the opportunity to respond to Jesus. Believer, will you respond in obedience, humility, and worship? If you don't believe, will you respond in faith and revelation as we have seen Jesus revealed today as the creator, the Messiah, the Son of God? Today you have seen him for who he is, revealed on the pages of Holy Scripture. As I pray and as Bo comes to lead us in communion, you have the time to respond to Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father, we confess our inadequacy to fully understand and grasp who the Lord Jesus Christ is. But you have revealed him and you have recorded it on the pages of scripture. And you have given us a clear picture of him today. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts would bow before him, the very one who made us, the very one who came to save us, the one who is fully man and fully God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, encourage us in our faith. Move in our midst. Help us to worship in Jesus' name. Amen.